Let's open our Bibles to the book of 2 Peter, the first chapter. 2 Peter chapter 1, if you will, please. We just finished teaching on Sunday evenings the book of 1 Peter. And all we're doing is taking the chapter and we'll try to give you as much as we can by studying it verse by verse. And it's not a sermon, as you might call it, but a lesson. And if when I get through you want to call it a sermon, that's up to you. <laughs> but anyway, we'll try to teach it. Second Peter, the first chapter. Now let's notice how he begins. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, if you notice, Simon Peter first mentions that he's a servant. He's one employed in the service of God, in the Lord's work. He doesn't put himself up as a, an apostle, even above the apostles, or, or in any way show uh, a priority or preeminence above any others. In fact, among us as servants. He learned the lesson when Jesus says, He that is greatest among you, let him be the servant of all. And so he was well familiar with what he uh, should be in the sight of God. And he says a servant and an apostle. Instead, of, You know, most people today, if they were uh, one of the chosen twelve especially, they would have put the apostle first. I'm an apostle and I serve the Lord. But Peter says I'm a servant and an apostle. He wanted us to know that he was one of the uh, original twelve apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of Jesus Christ. He says to them uh, that have obtained already possessed like precious faith. In other words, equal faith with us. It's valuable, precious, and it's with us. He put himself on the same level as other believers. Peter says, I'm a believer and you're a believer. And he says, you have obtained this faith like precious faith. He speaks of how valuable, the word precious meaning so valuable, and later on in verse 4, precious promises that's invaluable as far as uh, estimating the value of the promises. But he says, like precious faith with us. And it's through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. You know, uh, we have the, the faith, we have a personal faith in Jesus Christ, and as a result we have the righteousness of God uh, accounted to us or reckoned to us, and it's this like precious faith that, that makes us righteous by imputation, that he's imputed his righteousness unto us. And none of us are righteous within ourselves. There's, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. And so we have the imputed righteousness. If you have uh, Romans, if you will, chapter 3, beginning with verse, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 21, it says, But now... The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, now notice, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all of sin come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Uh, chapter 4, 
Verse 3, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. In verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. You see? So it's imputed or counted to us on the basis of Christ's satisfactory work on the cross. Right back in a, hold your place, always hold your place where we're studying in Second Peter. Let me give you quickly, while you have verse 1 where it says precious faith, let me give you some precious things in Peter's epistles. First of all, just hold your place there and you can turn back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 19 and you have the precious blood, the precious blood to redeem us. Look in 1 Peter chapter 1, you have it now? You had 1 verse 19, it says, But with the precious blood of Christ is a lamb without blemish and without spot. So you have the precious blood to redeem us. Also in the first chapter there, in verse 7, you have that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. You have uh, the precious faith to try us. Precious blood to redeem us. Precious faith to try us. And then in the second chapter of 1 Peter, you have in verse 4, Let's see, Second, uh, the precious stone, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. See that? He's the precious cornerstone. In verse 6 it says it more plainly. You have First Peter 2, verse 6, Wherefore also is contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. So he's the precious stone to uphold us. And then also... In chapter 2, verse 7, it tells us that it, this stone is Christ, that He is the precious stone. Unto you, therefore, which believe, He is precious. You see that? First Peter 2, verse 7, He is precious. And in this passage we just read, in Second Peter 1, verse 1, we have like precious faith. That means equally precious to us all. Let me give you one more now while you have Second uh, Peter. Chapter 1. Now look at down in verse uh, uh, 4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. Precious promises. So you have precious blood to redeem us, precious faith to try us, a precious stone to uphold us, a precious Christ to love, and uh, a, the precious faith to bind us together, and by which all of us are. Uh, made righteous or can I have the righteousness of God and then precious promises and we haven't got to that yet in our teaching when we get down to verse 4 we'll expound on it a little more so the very first verse says Simon Peter a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained notice past tense like precious faith with us on the same level through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ Notice he says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus uh, our Lord. Grace and peace that we can have through the gospel. Uh, we're saved by grace. Having been saved by grace, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1. But listen, look at this verse. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied. It's going to be multiplied through something. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that an incentive to know more about God's Word and to know more about Christ, to know more about God? 
If you have grace and peace, that's wonderful. But if you can have that grace and peace multiplied by knowing more about Jesus and knowing more about God the Father and through knowledge, the knowledge of His Word, not only head knowledge and, and uh, the mentality of uh, getting that knowledge in your minds, but the experimental knowledge that we have in, in our relationship with God. Experiencing not only uh, knowing that Christ is the Son of the living God, knowing that Jesus is our Savior, but knowing Him personally in a way that we see He loves us, He has mercy upon us, He has grace, He sympathizes with us, and knowing more about Him experimentally day by day in our lives. And that's how it can be multiplied. If you see something, suppose you saw a person that says, I have grace and peace, I'm saved by grace, and I have peace with God. You say, well, do you study the Word? Well, I've already been saved, but if you study the Word, he says, I'm going to multiply that grace and peace. Isn't it better to have something, you know, if you add something, that's good, isn't it? But when you multiply it, you add two and two and you get four. But you multiply two and, and two times six and two times ten and you begin to increase numbers rapidly. And most... Uh, uh, I wish we could get back to all the uh, school children today learning their multiplication tables, you know. they got these buttons they push, and if it comes out and they can read it, if, it, if the lights are not burned out, they know what it is. But if it happens to be burned out, they couldn't tell you what six times six is, no matter what. But I think it would be good if they learned the fundamentals of arithmetic. Have you ever gone into a store and some uh, person ring up the thing on the cash register and and the thing failed to work, and if you, if you had 15 cents change coming, they couldn't give it to you till they got all their computers back in order. Make sure to get it all fixed, and then we can give you 15 cents, and you can go home. But anyway, we're talking about multiplication. I'm glad that God's Word says it will be multiplied. Now I notice what he says in verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness... Through the knowledge. Look at that word knowledge. It must play an important part. If grace and peace are multiplied through the knowledge, and here it says, life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. See? Look how that verse is so tied together. You have it all there, but you can't really separate it all. But it's all so connected uh, that, that it's necessary to see everything that's there. I want to try to help you to see it. Notice, according as His divine power, it's through the divine power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that He has imparted or given to us. Now, He's given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. First of all, it's not you could not have godliness without, without having life. In other words, the first thing, He's given to us life, regeneration, spiritual life. And then as a result, he's given unto us godliness. And godliness is the second uh, step of that, what God has given to us. That's what he's given to us. But he first must give life. You cannot have godliness without a spiritual life. The Bible says, if any man uh, have not the Lord Jesus Christ, he is none of his. Right? He have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. I believe that's Romans 8, if you will. But it says... Um, let me read it for you. It says in 
verse 9, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So, you have to be spiritually born again. You have to have new life. God imparts that by grace. He imparts that upon your believing and accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible says, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. So a personal, trusting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And so trust him as your own personal Savior. God works a work of regeneration. A spiritual work is wrong. You become a partaker of a divine nature that God imparts. And even if it's a little boy or girl, a small child, when that person accepts Christ, God has worked a miracle of grace, of saving grace, in that heart and life. And you and I may not see very much, but God works a divine, miraculous work in the life of that child. And at whatever age you may come to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. But then notice what it says. He's given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And it's through the knowledge of Him. You have to know that He is the Savior. You have to know that you are a sinner in order to have life to begin with. And you have to be given the uh, Spirit's power to perfect godliness or to be godly at all in your life after you have received Jesus as Lord and Savior. All things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that hath called us, now look, hath called us to glory and virtue. The calling is like your call to something that, that you're going to possess and can only possess through the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. In other words, there's no greater calling that you could be called into than what he has called you to, but to, to perfect and to receive the fullness of all this, you have to first have the calling and then you have to receive the things that are there for you and we'll uh, develop those things as we go along. He's called you to glory and virtue. Virtue means excellence. He's called you to, to excellence. Excellence in the things of God. Now then, in verse 4, he says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Well, there's a mouthful there, isn't it? Look at what all he said. He said, first of all, there's promises that will, promises that will make us a partaker of the divine nature, of the spiritual nature of God's nature. That's what Jesus said when he said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So you're a partaker of the spiritual, divine, you're partaker of the divine nature. Partaker means fellowship with the nature of God, with a spiritual nature. You can go out here and fellowship on the carnal side of it with carnal man and with the carnal nature and with a sinful nature of men. And you partake of those sinful things on the lower scale. But to be a partaker of the divine nature, you have to have that divine nature. And you have to have a spiritual life. You have to have more than just the old carnal, a natural a man. Because it is dead in trespassing sins. We were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. So, look at this. So through precious promises, 
we can be made a partaker of the divine nature. And there are exceeding great and precious promises that takes us beyond even the initial divine nature that we must have. And then it goes further than that. And it tells us that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What does it mean? Look in Ephesians chapter 2, if you will. Ephesians chapter 2. It says, And you hath he quickened, look, you hath he quickened, made alive, resurrected, who were, here's what you were, you were dead in trespasses and sins. Where in time past you walked according to the course of this world. You walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. And Paul says, Among whom also we all, we all, had our conversation, our manner of life, our walk. In times past, in the lust of our flesh, this is what we did, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You see, that's what we were. And so Peter says that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We've escaped the corruption of being bound by this carnal nature and the sinful things in our lives. You've been delivered from those. You're no longer under their sway and domination. Uh, Paul said in Romans 6, Sin shall not have dominion over you. You say, well, preacher, I'm saved by grace and I sin. Well, all of us do. But it shall not have dominion over you. For you're not under the law but under grace. You may sin, but we, if any man sin, John says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And so we have an advocate, do we not? So here it says that we've escaped. That's past tense. We're no longer under the dominion of sin. And uh, Someone says, well, does that mean that I do not sin? Certainly, it doesn't mean you do not sin, but it means that sin cannot dominate you. The Bible tells us that we are to seek for spiritual things and walk after the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The only way sin will take advantage of you uh, and uh, uh, keep you in, in its bounds is for you to permit it to be so. You don't have to let it. You don't have to let it dominate you because you have the power to overcome and you have the power to face every temptation. Now, sometimes we yield to temptation, and we fall into sin. But then we have a, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that sin will not dominate you. You cannot be held in its bounds. You know, God's people are compared to sheep. We'll get that in, I believe it's the next chapter. But anyway, we're sheep. We're sheep. And you know, uh, you don't like the mud. The old uh, hog or the pig, it likes the mud. But see, we have a different... God's people are sheep nature, not hog, hog nature or pig nature. And so, when, uh, when you say, this fellow wallows in sin, well, he's more like his nature hadn't been changed. If you make a sheep out of him, he won't wallow in sin. He may, he may step in the mud hole. And he might even fall down in it. But he don't like it there and he'll get out of there. That's what we do when we confess our sin. We say, I don't like it there. See? As a Christian, you just don't like it. A true born-again child of God cannot be comfortable in sin. You just can't be. Now then, you may uh, 
fall into temptation. You may wrestle with it. You may have problems trying to overcome. And I'm sure every man has his problem with no one has not had problem with sin. But on the other hand, it shall not have dominion over you and you won't enjoy it if you stay there very long. That's why I believe in the eternal security of the believer. The Lord won't let you stay there. He'll get you out of it right away. He'll, he'll, make it, he'll make it so miserable for you, you'll say, I don't like this anymore. I want to get out of here. I want to get out of this place. Have you ever gone to a place as a child of God, as a Christian, you just feel like that you're in the wrong pew, you're in the wrong place? You go in some place, worldly place, and you say, my, I wish I was out of here. First thing you know, you probably get out, too. <laughs> you won't stay there too long. Going to some uh, place of ill repute, some uh, uh, beer joint or some place, however, whatever the circumstances that made you get in that situation. could be a friend or whatever, some a business deal or whatever. I'm not going to speculate on that. But if you were there, you're in the wrong place. You say, I'm getting out. Okay? Well, that's good for you to have that conviction. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Look, and beside this, give all diligence. Add to your faith. You start out with faith. You had that in verse 1, didn't you? You obtained like precious faith. And now, notice in verse 5, you're to add to your faith. Virtue. Excellence. Uh, And the virtue of knowledge, a more definite knowledge, a complete knowledge of doctrines, of the gospel, a complete and experimental knowledge, a greater knowledge. Add to your faith virtue and the virtue knowledge. And the knowledge temperance. Paul said be temperate in all things, right? Don't go overboard in anything. Be temperate. Be under control. Have everything under your control. Really, we should say, not your control, but have everything under God's control. Let Him control it. Temperance. And to temperance, patience. Tribulation, the Bible says, work of patience. And to patience, godliness. See, all these things will help us make and help make us more of what we ought to be. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, charity. Love to God, love to uh, all mankind, even your enemies and your persecutors, and especially love to one another. Then it says in verse 8, For if these things be in you and abound, they can be in you and not abound. They first have to be in you. They need to be in you. But they need to abound in you as well. They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge. That word knowledge pops up a lot, doesn't it? That means that we need to study God's Word. That means we need to know in the knowledge of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Knowing more. Uh, you know how Paul put it? He says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Paul, I thought you knew the Lord. You met Him on the road to Damascus. Yes, I met Him there. But he says, That I may know Him in the book of Philippians and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. In other words, Paul aspired to know more about Jesus, to know Him more closely, to know Him in His mercy, to know Him in His love, to know Him in His kindness, to know Him in His compassion. Have you ever thought of what it would have been like to, to walk and to live when Jesus was upon this earth and to actually see Him do the miracles and see Him have the compassion that He had upon the, the lepers and heal the sick and cleanse the lepers and have compassion on those that were weeping and 
uh, crying over the loss of Lazarus, Lazarus' death, and all the things that happened, that would have been wonderful. But Peter says, Whom having not seen, ye love, and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. You haven't seen him. But he, he says you can love him anyway. Look at this. Verse uh, 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. You need to know that it's sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fail. Notice calling and election are connected. Calling and election. Election is of God, and calling is something you answer and proves that the effective calling, elective calling, was on your behalf. Look at Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. I want you to notice verse uh, 29 and 30. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, election, predestination, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. But when that call went out, you and I answered it. The only part we had in it was receiving it. God gave it and we received it. Those that he predestinated, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Well, and we, when we answered that call, it was an effectual calling, wasn't it? It reached our souls. We, we were dead in trespasses and sin. We said, yes, I need to be saved. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. And you received that call. You believed on Christ. And then it says, uh, and whom he called them, he also justified. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now look at this. And whom he justified... Them he also glorified. You see, God saw the end of it from the beginning, didn't he? And you and I might say, well, I've not yet been glorified. None of us have. But as far as God is concerned, he says, them he also glorified. Those he predestinated, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So in the sight of God, you and I are just as surely glorified as if it were already done. But we haven't experienced it yet. It's still in the future as far as we're concerned, but it's one big now and present to God. He sees us in the light of eternity. He already sees us in heaven. He sees us made perfect. He sees us glorified together with Christ in glory, already delivered from this evil world, and already raptured to heaven, and already in the future of eternal state, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, singing the song of redemption. And we haven't gotten there yet. But we will, because God says that, that He's done all that already in advance for us. Back in this, in Second Peter chapter one. So when it says, "Make the calling and make your calling and election sure," He's talking about being sure about your salvation. Be sure you've answered the call of the gospel. Be sure that God has convicted you of your sins and that you've repented of your sins. And you receive Jesus, knowing that you are a sinner. In other words, check up. Paul says uh, to prove your own selves, whether you be in the faith. In other words, examine yourselves, as Paul puts it, whether you're in the faith. He says, know ye not that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reprobates? Let me see if I can find that. Second Corinthians chapter... Uh, Second Corinthians... 
chapter uh, 11. Well, I thought I had it. But anyway, I can't find it right now. But he says, uh, Know you not that Jesus Christ is in you? Okay, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. He says, Examine yourselves. Now, this is what we need to do. Paul said to the Corinthians, Examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves? How that Jesus Christ is in you? Except you be reprobates, but I trust that you know that we are not reprobates. And so he called on the Corinthians to make examination, just as Peter did. Right back now in Second Peter chapter 1. He says, For if you do these things, verse 10, ye shall never fall, you'll never stumble so as to fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly in the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You want an abundant entrance, a rich entrance, or a scarce entrance? A rich entrance into the kingdom. Not as Paul spoke of some that were that they would be saved, yet so as by fire. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3 when he said their works would be burned up and they would suffer loss, yet he says, yet his soul shall be saved, yet so as by fire. We've heard the expression, you don't want to get in just by the skin of your teeth. In other words, what we're saying is that the salvation by grace through faith is sufficient for our salvation completely and totally, and there's no lack in the atonement. But some people that are saved by grace through faith never show any uh, fruits of righteousness or anything, and their works are going to be burned up. And all they've laid claim to is just the security that they find in in, uh, their soul's salvation. That's all they want, seemingly. And so Peter's trying to say, that's not all we want. We want a rich and abundant entrance. And we want rewards when we get to heaven. We want more than just getting in, but because we're saved, we want to get in there with rewards. And I think every Christian should desire an abundant entrance, a rich entrance. In verse 12, Wherefore I will not always, uh, I will not be negligent, verse 12, Wherefore I will not be negligent, to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Now, what's Peter saying? He says, I'm not going to neglect reminding you. Have you ever heard someone say, I knew all about that? Or you preached on that before? Peter says, though you know them. He realized that. He realized that they'd heard about it. He didn't count them all as, as not knowing anything about it, but he said, I'm going to... Uh, put you in remembrance. God's people, even though you know something, you need to be reminded of that truth. That you may be established in this in the present truth. You see, the more you hear it, the more you become established in it. The more you are grounded in it. Someone says, well, Brother Joyce, you preached on that a year ago. Well, if you heard it a year ago, you need to hear it today, too. And you may probably need to hear it by next year, too when I come to it again, because you may have forgotten part of it. So it doesn't hurt to repeat. Remember old Dr. Lakin used to say that a sermon that you couldn't preach the second time wasn't worth preaching the first time. And so uh, it's true we need to be established in the faith, don't we? And he says, though you know them and be established in the present truth, the gospel truth. 
In other words, he wanted them to be indoctrinated. Some people say, well, well, that's indoctrination. That's exactly what we fail to do in the fundamental ranks is indoctrinate people in the fundamentals in the, in the, in the fundamentals of the faith. We, we have failed to indoctrinate them so that all of these cuffs that are running around snatch them now and then away. But if you and I would be more indoctrinating them in the truth of God, they wouldn't fall uh, for some of those uh, false every wind of doctrine that blows around by the slight of men. Paul said in Ephesians 4, verse 14, Be no more children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Well, how are you not going to be a child anymore in doctrinal spiritual things? Because the only way you can be more mature is to be grounded. And that's what Peter's saying. He says, I'm, I'm not going to neglect. He's saying, I'm going to endeavor, rather to give you these things, and I want you to be established in the present truth. In verse 13, Yea, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir up, stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Look at that. Peter says, I want to keep your mind thinking about it. I want to keep your minds alive thinking about it. I want to put you in remembrance of this constantly, day in and day out. And he says, as long as I'm in this tabernacle, I love that. There's something there I want to give you too. He meant that the real Paul himself was living in this tent. As long as, look at the language there. As long as I'm in this tabernacle. He said, I'm going to move out of it pretty shortly. I'm going to move out of this house. I'm in here, but I'm going to move out. And we need to get that more in our minds as Christians. We're only living in this temporal house now. It's very flimsy. It's going to uh, rot, decay one of these days. It's going to be done with. It's going to, the hinge is going to fall off and the roof's going to cave in, the whole thing. We're not going to have it any longer. But uh, Peter says, I'm going to move out of it one of these days. Look, he says, as long as I'm in this tabernacle. See the language? To stir you up by putting you in remembrance. So the body was not uh, Peter. He only dwelt in that body. This body is not totally me. This body is the house in which I live. My spirit and soul and my being lives inside of a body that God gave me to live in upon this earth. But these bodies are all temporal, and they're going to have to undergo a change. But nevertheless, about that body, when we leave it, we're going to leave it behind. We're going to move out of this house. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle, and the word tabernacle means tent, actually, it's a more flimsy word, or we might say a fragile word. Instead of a tabernacle like a building, it's a tent, really. And we're going to move out. And he says, we know if our earthly house of this tent were dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands. Move out of a tent into a house? Sounds good. A uh, house not made with hands, he says, eternal in the heavens. And then he says further in that same passage in, in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says in verse 6, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, this body, we are absent from the Lord. But in verse 8 he says, We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So when we become absent from this body, we're going to simply be present with the Lord. Just as quick as that. Just as quick as the snap of a finger. When we completely, when we leave this body, when death comes, we're going to depart it, and when you see Brother Joyce there, 
It's not going to be me. It'll be what the house I used to live in. It's all it'll be. And I'll be gone. I won't be there anymore. I'll be with the Lord. And so will every one of you when you leave this tabernacle. That's what Peter was saying. Look at it. Yeah, I think it meet as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. We have about 10 or 12 minutes now, so bear with me. Knowing that shortly... Now, he knew that the time was near. Knowing that shortly, I must put off this, my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Remember in John chapter 21, Jesus revealed to Peter that he would die and be crucified. John 21. This he said, signifying by what death he must die. Now look. He says, I know that my time is near, that as the Lord has shown me, I will put off uh, this tabernacle. Uh, verse 15, Moreover, I, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. Look how many times he used the word remembrance or remember. Look in verse 12. He says, I will put you in remembrance. In verse 13, he says, I want to, as long as I'm living in this body, I want to put you in remembrance. And then he goes on down in verse uh, 15. He says, I will endeavor that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. He couldn't do anything after he was gone from this body. So he said, I want to remind you enough while I'm living that when I'm dead, you'll still be reminded. You'll still have it in mind. I want you to so uh, in, absorb these things while I'm living, and I want to so remind you of these gospel truths that while I'm alive, that you will have them so absorbed in your being that after I'm dead and gone, you will still have them living on in you and dwelling in you, and they'll always remain with you. You'll have them always in remembrance. I can look back now and see some of the great teachers that I used to sit under, Dr. Conley, Dr. Godsoe, Dr. Roy Kemp, and Dr. Oldham. And some of them are gone. Dr. Oldham's still living, but the others are gone, the ones I mentioned. They're already gone to be with the Lord. But some of the things they told me, I still remember. And I hope that after I'm gone, some of the things I'm telling you, you'll still remember. you still remember. That's what Peter wanted. You see, he had, a, he had a job to indoctrinate them, and he was doing that very job. And he says, by the way, he used the word decease, departure, meaning his exodus from this life. That's what it means. The word means an exodus. It means a departure. It wasn't as if it's, he ceased to be. Decease didn't mean he's going to quit being anywhere. It means he's going to leave. See? Like the exodus of the children of Israel out of Egypt. Like the departure. Paul says that. Paul speaks of his departure. And uh, so, and by the way, did you know he uses the same word that it, the context here speaks of? If you just have time to bear with me now, listen carefully. He used the same word, decease, that Moses and Elijah spoke of Christ's death on the cross when they appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration. Look back, in, and we'll get to it in a minute, but look back in Luke 9, verse uh, 30 and 31. It says in Luke 9, verse 30 and 31, Behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory, and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. We'll get back to that Mount of Transfiguration in a, moment, in a moment, but I just wanted to show you the word and the terminology that Peter picks up on that, and he says, my decease. 
because Moses and Elijah were speaking of Christ's decease. By the way, that's the only times it's used in that in that uh, relationship is concerning Jesus and then concerning Peter. And he picks up on that. He says, Moses and Elijah, when we were with him on that holy mountain, that's the next part of the context in here in Second Peter, but he says Moses and Elijah talked about Christ's decease, which he could should accomplish at Jerusalem. He says, there on the mount, when I was there, Peter, James, and John, he was one of them, he says, that's what we heard them talking about. They spake of Christ's decease. That was their whole subject of conversation, was the death of Christ. Moses didn't talk about the Red Sea. Elijah didn't talk about being taken up in a chariot of fire into heaven. But they talked about Christ's death that would happen very soon and be accomplished at Jerusalem. And Peter says that after my decease, he used the same word. Isn't it something how that, that one person picks up and learns the language and the and the meaning of the next person next to you, that's why you better be careful what you say and be a good example. If you use bad things, the wrong kind of terminology, the wrong words, they're going to pick up on that and they're going to use it. So use the right things and people will pick up on that too. See, you set an example for folks. You're influential. And even those two men in glory with Jesus, uh, they made an impression on Peter. He says, I saw the preview of the coming of Christ. Look at it. The next verse, verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, that is, the fables that, uh, of the false gods, the appearing of their gods in human form on earth. He says, we've not followed anything like that when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now how, Peter, how were you eyewitnesses of the majesty and the coming, the power and the coming of Christ. Peter is saying that Jesus gave me a preview of, of it when we went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He gave me a preview of His power and His coming. That's exactly what He did, too. And so, Peter, James, and John were taken up in the high mountain apart to pray, and He was transfigured before them. The Bible says His face did shine as the sun, His raiment was white as the light. The Bible tells about how uh, Christ was transfigured there and there spake with him Moses and Elijah that appeared with him in glory and they spake of his decease that's what we just read that he would accomplish at Jerusalem and Peter says we're not telling you some story as if we have gods or cunningly devised fables and we see things appearing in a human form but we were actually eyewitnesses of the power and the coming again of Christ now look continue on down if you keep your eyes on the page Notice how it's falling on down with the story of the Mount of Transfiguration. He says, For he received, that is Christ, he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. See that? And that's actually what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And he says, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Look at that. Look at that. What is he saying? He's saying we had a preview of Christ's power and coming. We have not followed cunningly devised fables. We actually were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were with him on that holy mount. And we know that Jesus showed us that he is coming again. And when he comes again, Moses and Elijah will be present too. In fact, if you turn in the... Uh, the book of Revelation chapter 11, the two faithful witnesses, one had power to shut up the heaven that it rained not, the other had power to turn the water into blood. 
And these are the same two signs that Moses and Elijah uh, could uh, perform and the miracles that they performed while they were upon this earth. I could go into detail about that, but we would not have time. It would take a whole lesson. And it means at least that these two that will appear will be Moses-like and Elijah-like in power and glory. And it probably will be the same two persons. But we don't have uh, definite evidence of that because John the Baptist was spoken of by the Lord as that Elijah which was for to come. So it does not demand the personal appearance of Elijah or Moses either. But it does, it does not exclude their personal appearance either. And there's plenty of reason to believe that. So it's a deep subject. I believe I have the word to give you for it, but we won't have time to expound it. If you have any questions about it, I'll be glad to discuss it with you later.